Hello and good evening. And welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name's Catherine Favell and I have the great pleasure of looking after the library's community outreach programs. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land that the library is built on. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call our home. Tonight is the first event in our new partnership with the Grattan Institute, a partnership that we're delighted to be involved in that's bringing public policy discussions to the National Library. Since its launch in 2008, the Grattan Institute has established a profile as a leader of independent analysis of Australian domestic public policy, aiming to influence both public discussion and senior decision makers. Its focus is on the important rather than the urgent, on the things that could make a difference to the well-being of Australians over the long run, not distracted by three-year electoral cycles. In that way, we think it's very like the National Library of Australia, because we too are here for the long run and we take the long view in the collecting, preserving and providing access to Australia's documentary heritage. Tonight's discussion, of course, will focus on one of the most contested and important areas of Australian public policy, energy and climate change. And I think we could be forgiven for assuming that maybe the Grattan Institute has fed discussions over the past week because is there a more timely moment for us to be talking about energy policy than tonight? To tell us a little bit more about the work of the Institute and our guest speakers, I'm introducing tonight Tony Wood, who is the Energy Program Director at Grattan. He served as Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation, advising governments in the Asia-Pacific region on effective deployment of large-scale, low-emission energy technologies. And in 2008, he provided an industry perspective to the first Garno Climate Change Review. Please join me in welcoming Tony Wood to the stage. Thank you, Catherine, and good evening. Um, the, uh, this is, as Catherine said, is the first of these events. We have a, a similar relationship uh, we've had for several years now with the uh, State Library in Victoria and also in Queensland and New South Wales. Um, there's something about Melbourne people that they get confused between public policy and football matches because we, um, we, we tend to get a, a pretty good crowd these days, but uh, maybe that's something about the, um, the nature of Victoria. Uh, look, thank you very much for coming tonight. I think hopefully I think you'll find this an interesting discussion. Um, it is at least somewhat timely. Um, I think uh, uh, the, the good news for people like me who work in energy policy is that there's never been a more exciting time to be in policy um, in this country. Um, and it certainly keeps, um, keeps us well and truly employed. Tonight we're going to be delving into an area that is both important, challenging, and at times also quite tricky, and hopefully you'll get a feeling for some of this this evening in the way we proceed. The intention is that, um, and I'll introduce Helen and Frank in a moment, but uh, Helen Wilson will uh, discuss the climate review, which in the, in the noise of the last few weeks um, has been a little lost, I think, that this review was actually taking place. Um, the Finkel Review is also underway, and uh, we can talk about that a little if people are interested, and how that will dovetail into the Climate Review. But I think the Climate Review is a particularly important part of the government's uh, uh, process of identifying uh, how we're going to move forward on climate change. 
After Helen has presented her comments about how that will go, and she's heading up that review, uh, Frank Jotso will make some comments in regard to the review and from his perspective, and I'll also do a, the similar, a similar thing. We'll have a, a bit of a conversation amongst ourselves to give you some time to think about the, the questions you'd like to ask of the panel. Um, and also I may use two or three of the questions that we had submitted before this evening. We gave people the opportunity to do so if, um, if they wanted to do that. And I've got some, and I won't try and read them all out because some of them are, are longer than some of the presentations you're going to hear tonight. Um, but that's the nature of the beast. People feel very passionate about these sort of issues, um, public policy issues and particularly uh, climate change issues. And I'm sure some of that will come out this evening. So um, what I'd like to do now is introduce Helen Wilson. Um, Helen is the first assistant secretary of the Department of uh, um, Environment and Energy. And I think one of the most interesting developments in the last 12 months was the appointment of the current minister, Josh Frydenberg, to be responsible for both areas, because it was actually starting to put into practice the recognition that, you know what, right now energy and climate change are actually very closely related. Um, now, we're still, I think, some ways from seeing how that's going to play out in terms of real hard policy, but that, I think that was an important step to have these two areas of, of public, of government interests under the same minister and under the same department. But Helen's been working in this area of climate change policy for a number of years. She wouldn't have achieved the position of seniority if she didn't know what she was talking about. And so she's going to share uh, her views about how this, um, inform you a bit more about how this is going to play out. Now, Catherine mentioned that I, um, I spent 2000, most of 2008 working with Ross Garneau on the Garneau Climate Change Review. And one of the people I met in that review was Frank Jotso. Um, Frank uh, has an uh, extraordinarily deep understanding as, a, as an economist of not just the uh, Australian but also the international world of climate uh, policy and climate economics. And there's probably very few people in Australia, let alone people in the world, who know more about this topic than Frank does. And uh, it's an interesting opportunity for, uh, to engage with this, this particular topic. So, without more ado, let me pass that to Helen. I should, by the way, remind you that you can follow this. You'll see the... Uh, uh, the uh, Twitter feed um, identities at the bottom of that screen there. Um, we will also be uh, recording this, t this, this, uh, this evening and that will be available on the Grattan website uh, probably sometime in the next couple of days. So again, um, look forward to this discussion, hopefully some debate, some interesting topics uh, and you know, I'm sure some points of view will come forward. Let me uh, pass over to Helen Wilson. Thanks, Tony, and thanks for the invitation to chat with you tonight at the first ever Capital Ideas event. As Tony just said, it is a big year for climate and energy policy, with work underway on both the government's climate change policy review and the independent review into the future security of the national electricity market, led by the Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel. The Australian Government has been clear it's committed to addressing climate change while maintaining energy security, reliability and affordability. The Department of the Environment and Energy is conducting the climate change policy review with the help of other Commonwealth departments and as Tony said, it's my division that is leading this work. We are at the start of the process for the climate change review. The Government will shortly release a discussion paper inviting input and public submissions. We really do want to hear from business and the community and individuals. I thought what I'd do tonight is spend a few minutes outlining what is happening globally, 
then talk about what is happening domestically and finish with an overview on the sorts of issues that the 2017 review will consider. I want to start by saying that post the Paris Agreement, there has clearly been a step up in momentum on action on climate change. Importantly, this is not just national governments that have signed the agreement. It's also sub-national governments, it's business, it's cities and it's community groups and individuals. We all do have a role to play. The Paris Agreement was a game changer. As the Prime Minister has said, almost a year on from the Paris Agreement, it is clear the agreement was a watershed, a turning point and the adoption of a comprehensive strategy that has galvanised the international community and spurred on global action. The world is moving together to reduce emissions. For example, China plans to introduce a national emissions trading scheme this year after piloting it in seven cities and provinces. They are expanding renewable generation and improving industrial energy efficiency. India has set targets to increase their installed renewable energy capacity increase forest cover and improve efficiency of coal power generation. India will tax both imported and domestically produced coal with the revenue directed to what's called the National Clean Energy Fund for Renewable Energy Pro Products. Interestingly, the International Civil Aviation Organisation will implement what's called a carbon offsetting scheme for international aviation emissions from 2021. Australia and more than 60 countries will participate in the scheme and these countries together represent well over 80% of total international aviation traffic. The government is committed to Australia playing its part in the global effort. Again, I want to quote the Prime Minister who said, Australia doesn't make international agreements only to break them. They're ones that are achievable and that we can meet. Australia is moving in step with other countries. Our 2030 target is to reduce emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels. This target is comparable to other developed economies such as Japan and New Zealand. Under the Paris Agreement, we will review our target every five years to ensure we continue to play our part. Businesses are also taking action. Business awareness of climate risk and opportunities has grown in recent years and many of the companies I talk to are preparing for the transition to a lower emissions future. The G20 has acknowledged the change in climate poses risks and opportunities for companies. The G20 has a task force looking at how companies can voluntarily disclose the risks and opportunities they face as a result of a, climate, a change in climate. This work is already influencing Australian business practices. Individuals and households are also contributing. More than 1.6 million households have installed solar panels with the help of the renewable energy target. There are a range of ways the Australian Government is working to reduce emissions. These include the Emissions Reduction Fund and its safeguard mechanism. The fund provides incentives for business and landholders to reduce emissions and improve the environment. 178 million tonnes of emissions reductions have been contracted from 397 projects across the country, 
The average price paid per tonne of abatement has been low at $11.83. The fund is delivering other great benefits besides the emissions reductions. For example, Savannah fire management projects are providing cultural, environmental and economic opportunities for Indigenous communities across Northern Australia. The safeguard mechanism puts limits on Australia's largest emitters. It covers about 50% of national emissions, ensuring the emissions reductions the government purchases through the fund are not offset by significant emissions increases elsewhere in the economy. The renewable energy target supports households to generate solar energy and incentivises investment in renewable energy. The target will see renewables grow from around 15% today to around 23.5% of Australia's electricity supply in 2020. The National Energy Productivity Plan is a package of measures and initiatives to improve Australia's energy productivity by 40% by 2030. The plan brings together energy market reforms, energy efficiency measures and efforts to reduce emissions at least cost, particularly in buildings, appliances and vehicles. For example, what's called the Equipment Energy Efficiency Program is accelerating appliance energy efficiency standards in priority areas such as air conditioners, fridges, freezers, swimming pool pumps and light lighting. These improvements could potentially save consumers hundreds of dollars a year. Australia is working with other countries to encourage a global phase down of hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs as they're known, which are used in refrigerators and air conditioners. Australia played a lead role in securing this important international agreement. The agreement will see Australia and other developed countries phase down these HFCs to 85% of current consumption levels by 2036. This global phase down will reduce emissions by 70 billion tonnes in the period to 2050. And that is equivalent to one and a third years of total greenhouse gas emissions. In July last year, the government announced that it would take early action to phase down HFCs as a contribution to meeting Australia's 2030 emissions reduction target. Australia's phase down is expected to start in 2018, a full year earlier than the, Mont uh, the Montreal Protocol start date. Work is underway to reduce emissions from light vehicles. The department is consulting with industry on measures to reduce emissions from vehicles as well as improve the quality of Australia's transport fuels. The primary emissions reduction measure being considered under the um, work to date is a light vehicle fuel efficiency standard like those that operate in the EU and in the US. As well as reducing emissions, these measures could cut consumer fuel costs, reduce health costs and help give Australians better access to the latest vehicle technology. The government is also supporting clean energy innovation across the whole spectrum of research and development, demonstration and deployment. Australia joined the Global Mission Innovation in 2015 and has pledged to double government investment in clean energy research and 
development investment by 2020. Research and development grants are provided by a range of organisations, including the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, the CSIRO, the Australian Research Council and others. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation provides support to support the deployment of clean energy technologies in renewable power generation, energy efficiency buildings and low emissions vehicles. For example, one of the projects that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is currently funding is the development of energy efficient community housing, which will reduce energy costs for low income families and residents. The government's carbon neutral program helps business and organisations to become carbon neutral. This means helping business to reduce their emissions where possible and using offset units to compensate for the remainder. By becoming carbon neutral, a range of businesses are positioning themselves for growth and competitiveness in a lower emissions future. Going carbon neutral often involves making operational changes that will reduce energy or fuel use. These improvements can lead to significant cost savings. There are around 40 organisations and businesses that are certified carbon neutral, and these include large corporations, local councils and small business. And we're constantly surprised by the range of businesses that are keen to go carbon neutral. And ultimately, this gives consumers more choice to purchase carbon neutral products and services. Now, I want to go back to the 2017 review and where to from here. All the policies I've just outlined are helping to reduce Australia's emissions. Australia does have a track record of meeting our international emissions reduction commitments. For example, we are on track to beat our 2020 target to reduce emissions by 5% below 2000 levels and we are making progress towards our 2030 target. Although progress is being made, further reductions are needed to meet the 2030 target. The 2017 review is looking at the current climate change policies to ensure they remain effective in achieving our 2030 target and our Paris Agreement commitments. We have been anticipating this review for a few years. The government did commit to the review back in 2015 when they announced Australia's 2030 emissions reduction target. The review will consider a number of issues, including the integration of climate change and energy policy, the opportunities and challenges of reducing emissions for each sector of the economy, the impact of policies on jobs, on investment, on trade competitiveness, on households and regional Australia. And the review will consider a potential long-term emissions reduction goal post-2030. As I said at the start, the government will shortly release a discussion paper seeking public submissions. And through our consultations to date, and I have already met with over 70 groups, businesses and individuals, business have emphasised the importance of policy, certainty and stability. They would like to see the government build on existing policies. That is what the 2017 review is looking at. There is no single emissions reduction policy that can achieve everything. A set of policies crafted to suit each sector's circumstances can be more effective. 
A flexible and scalable approach to policy is also important because no one is able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. Emissions are produced from a range of sectors and activities across the economy. In line with the terms of reference, the discussion paper will ask for people's views on the opportunities and challenges of reducing emissions in each sector of the economy. Energy is a particular... Um, it's very topical at the moment. And while generating electricity is a large source of emissions, secure, reliable and affordable electricity is critical for Australian businesses and essential for households. The electricity sector is also a large employer with over 60,000 people working in the industry and many of those are in regional areas. As Tony said at the start, the Council of Australian Governments has asked the Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, to develop a national reform blueprint to maintain energy security and reliability in the national electricity market. I know that Dr Finkel's review has received over 300 submissions. Dr Finkel's recommendations on policies to address the trifecta of providing energy security and affordability while reducing emissions will be a very important input into the 2017 review. But every sector will need to make a contribution to reducing emissions. The resources, manufacturing and waste sectors are important contributors to the Australian economy. In looking at the opportunities to reduce emissions in those sectors, the government will need to be mindful of keeping in step with the actions of other countries. We know more can be done to reduce emissions from buildings and from the transport sector. In recent years, over 200,000 new homes have been built each year and the average Australian travels a total of 49 kilometres every day. There's also an opportunity to store more carbon in the land, but the CSIRO notes this will need to be managed, carefully managed, to balance outcomes for water, land productivity and biodiversity. We are at the start of the review process. The advice the department gives through the review to government will be based on what we have heard from consultation and will be based on the terms of reference. I look forward to hearing uh, what Frank and Tony have to say now and then from taking questions from the floor. Thank you. Yeah, Helen has one of the most difficult jobs in this town at the moment, uh, leading, leading the government's policy review uh, on climate change policy. Uh, and so Helen mentioned the, the integration of, of climate change and energy policy at the federal level. That's a, that's a very good thing indeed, because that exactly need, is, is what needs to happen. We need to develop um, a clear understanding that, that achieving climate change objectives uh, in, in the long term really is an issue of getting energy policy right. Um, but the reason I'm saying Helen has the most difficult uh, job in this town uh, is, is that, that she works in an intensely uh, political field where, uh, where good, uh, good policy is often, often trumped uh, by, by the politics. And it's nothing recent. Uh, this is what we've seen 
in, in various guises, unfortunately, over, over a period of, of, of 10 years or so. And so we think about the, uh, the, the trilemma uh, of um, what we want to achieve or, or the three things we need to deal with uh, in the energy sectors, reliability, affordability, and low-carbon outcomes, okay, environmental outcomes. So if we follow the recent policy debate on this, then uh, reliability gets big emphasis, affordability equally gets big emphasis, and we hear very little talk about the low-carbon objective. Um, in one sense, that's affordable, uh, that's, that's understandable uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what we, what we saw happen uh, over the last uh, weeks and months in terms of reliability. Uh, it's, it's understandable in terms of, uh, the, you know, the, the significant rises in electricity prices at the retail level that we've seen over recent years, much of it to do with network expansion. Um, but we don't... We, we should not leave uh, sight of, of the longer-term picture here, and that is that we're dealing with long-lived assets, we're dealing with investment decisions uh, that, uh, as a society, we will have to live with for, for decades to come, um, and we will want to avoid a situation where we're looking back in, in two, three decades' time and thinking, well, back in the, in the late 2010s, we made some really bad decisions that left us lumbered with, with expensive high-carbon assets. Um, now, in terms of electricity sector, it's really central to achieving a long-term low-emissions outcome. Uh, many analyses, including the deep decarbonisation pathway study that we worked on at ANU together with Climate Works at Monash, uh, showed that Australia's electricity sector can be fully decarbonised close to zero emissions by the middle of the century. This can be done relatively cheaply, and this can be done in a way that is uh, that we have a reliable uh, electricity grid. And many studies that, that show that. Um, so it's, it's uh, of, of, of really central importance to get that done because it's relatively easy to decarbonize the electricity sector. And once you've done that, then you can shift all manner of other electricity use, energy uses onto electricity. So that's really the blueprint into the future. And lots of opportunity um, lurks there as well because we're actually uh, a continent blessed with uh, renewable energy opportunities um, and, uh, and you, can, you can see opportunities for energy industries of the future to be built uh, on, that, on that potential. But getting there seems to be really very, very difficult indeed and uh, one of the reasons it's so difficult is that um, industry has had to deal with policy uncertainty now for, for a significant period of time. Um, so, uh, you know, investors don't like uncertainty. Uh, investors deal with uncertainty but require a premium in terms of the required rates of return or the interest charged on a loan. And when risk exceeds a certain level, many investors will just retreat and not invest at all. Uh, that's what we've seen in the energy sector uh, where, where the politics of energy and climate change have really become very unpredictable for investors uh, and so we're just not seeing that investment. So what we need is cred credible, predictable policy approaches that, that, that last for a while. So that, that seems um, uh, kind of a nirvana but um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's a back and forth and, and incremental progress can be made. So now, for, as an economist, I can tell you the, you know, the, the, the unanimous answer around the world as to what is you know, the right policy instrument to use as a backbone of sensible climate policy is a carbon price. Okay? Put a price on it, create a lasting and widespread 
incentive throughout the economy to, to reduce emissions um, and do that in a cost-effective manner. Now, if you can't do that, there's other ways of getting effective incentives into the system. And a lot of the emphasis over, over the last perhaps two years or so, and Tony has been very instrumental in that, in that debate, uh, is, is an emissions intensity scheme, right? which is effectively a price-based emissions um, reduction incentive in the electricity supply sector. Okay, so uh, fair to say that within this community there was a shared understanding that that's not such a bad second best, okay, uh, and also an expectation that this might be something that the two major parties could in fact in some ways, not, if not agree on, then at least both live with, right, and that could have been the kernel or could still be the kernel of, uh, of a bipartisan uh, situation going forward. Uh, for the time being, uh, the prospects of that uh, appear... Uh, rather dim, uh, but you know we've seen we've seen swings and roundabouts in this. What are the alternatives for that? Well, you could think of turning the renewable energy target into a low emissions energy target, um, which would similarly provide a, a uniform price signal throughout the electricity supply sector, incentivizing lower carbon investment, including gas. Um, other policy instruments that uh, perhaps uh, uh, that may well have a role in the, in, in the, in the mix are uh, policies to facilitate orderly exit of old carbon-intensive assets. So we put a proposal for a market-based mechanism for exit of, uh, of, of high-emitting coal-fired power stations into the mix. Others have suggested this should be by regulation. The fundamental point is that, uh, you know, what we've seen with the Hazelwood uh, closure, uh, these announcements can come very suddenly and then they create problems in the, in the market. So the national electricity market was not designed uh, with, with exit in mind. And so there's, there's room for, for positive um, intervention by, by governments to, to help the market uh, anticipate what, what comes down the track. There's a whole lot that we could say about the need for, for energy market reform. Uh, it's not altogether obvious that the national electricity market as it stands, as an energy-only market, can really deliver uh, to provide predictable revenue flows uh, in a system that in the future may be dominated by renewable energy sources. So it's a lot of analysis that needs to be done uh, and we need to better understand uh, the alternatives and the role of different uh, aspects of, of market allocation um, and, and, and the role that, that the market can play in providing revenue streams to electricity generators. Um, now, that, uh, that may well take us to the question of, of state investment, government investment. So we've had the South Australian announcement of, uh, of, of, of government investment into a new gas-fired power station to cover those peaks in electricity demand uh, as long, along with, uh, with uh, storage. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that all of these things remember, affordability in the trilemma, cost money. In this case, it will cost uh, taxpayers in South Australia money, talking, I think, $360 million for a gas plant that is anticipated to run only perhaps a few days a year. Um, so these are questions for public policy, right? Is it, is, it, is it a sensible decision for society to make to pay that amount of money for the eventuality um, of, uh, of another uh, peak pricing period um, in, in the South Australian grid? 
um, the analogy of the of the desalination plants, of course, does does come to mind. And, and it's not to say it's necessarily the wrong decision, but it's it's a decision that's not to be taken lightly. And once again, there are of course alternatives: storage through batteries, or in fact, pumped hydro storage, where you pump water up the hill and let it back down when you need electricity, um, are viable options. And crucially, are options that are in fact compatible with a long-term objective of a decarbonized electricity supply. Now, just on the, on the question uh, of, of how do we manage electricity demand on those hot summer afternoons, right? So we had one, of the, one or two or three of those in Canberra over, over recent weeks. Um, and it's interesting, actually, when you, when you talk to the people who actually manage this, right, this was the first large-scale episode, I'm told, um, where, where governments, in fact, resorted to what they call voluntary restrictions, okay? So they were called to major electricity users to please scale back. Okay, so for example, buildings that uh, periodically uh, use their backup generators just to keep the generators uh, ticking over in good maintenance were asked to run those backup generators on those afternoons. Okay, businesses were asked um, to turn the, the air conditioning down a bit. And the estimated overall effect of these voluntary demand side measures uh, was about in the same order of magnitude as switching the Tomago aluminium smelter off. So there's tremendous potential there, uh, and it essentially comes at, at, at very low cost and just requires some coordination and an extent of goodwill throughout the community. Of course, looking forward, you might well... Um, achieve more by providing electricity consumers with accurate price signals because when you turn on your electricity, your, your air conditioner on that afternoon, um, the amount of money you're paying for running that electricity, that guzzling device, is heaps less than what your retailer actually has to pay for it. Okay? And so if we actually had that price signal as, as consumers, we, we could do a lot more. Uh, anyway, I'll close by saying long-term vision very clear. A lot of renewable energy supply can be harvested very cheaply. Okay, there's a transition issue, and the important thing is not to get the, the, the short-term uh, investment decisions wrong. Uh, and really, the challenge for for politics and policymakers is to to hang in there and argue for those those good policy settings, and in fact, the kind of stable, predictable policy settings that a large majority of the Australian business community uh, is asking for. Thanks very much. Uh, Frank um, used the word politics and policy in the same sentence. Um, and I might try and continue that theme just for a couple of minutes uh, because it seems to me that, you know, we are... Uh, on the one hand, you can be negative about this and look at the f fact that the, you know, the, the battlefield of climate politics is sort of littered with the dead bodies of politicians who had a go and then gave up under various circumstances um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, on the other hand, you can also see that at times the windows of politics and policy can line up. You know, the train's passing and you might actually see through that. The problem is they don't stay open for very long. And when they, when they open, people think we've got lots of time, but then they close and they can close for a long time. And we saw that happen in 2005, six, probably again in 2007, eight. Um, so the first one was when... You know, John Howard was, someone might argue, you know, kicking and screaming, dragged into an emissions trading scheme. Second one was Kevin Rudd got wound up about it in terms of the great moral challenge. Um, then we had, even last year, 
uh, climate policy wasn't actually a big deal in the election because there was a, a, a broad expectation that we might see some alignment. And industry was also, as Frank said, calling for that sort of um, clarity around policy. And I guess when, you, when you've been doing this stuff for a while, um, you can become very pessimistic, and I've got my long sleeves on so you won't see the slashes in my wrists, but um, at the moment we're somewhat more optimistic that this t we might actually see some things move because there are a number of things that, align that are aligned. Um, that means the expectations are relatively high. Um, as Helen said, the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, ratified the Paris Agreement, which his predecessor had signed to. And interestingly, I, what I found particularly interesting about that was that he chose to do that within 48 hours of Donald Trump being elected as President of the United States and made it very clear in the way Helen described it that Australia had made its commitment and we intended to meet that commitment. The role of the Commonwealth uh, is central to the way this plays out. But of course, we've also seen the roles of the states because we have this concept called federalism, sometimes called cooperative and mostly more accurately described as uncooperative federalism. Um, you only have to see the um, pretty unedifying examples in recent times when, um, for example, the Victorian government basically said, how dare you send our electricity to New South Wales, our electricity, mind you, to New South Wales and potentially put at risk the towns of Ballarat and Bendigo in Victoria to understand how parochially we become. And I, often I find that describing energy policy and climate policy to people outside this country, you need to explain that relative to most countries in the world, we don't behave like a country, we behave like half a dozen different countries, all of which have our own very parochial issues and nothing brings that to the surface more quickly than energy policy. Partly because this area of, of policy um, and systems are more interconnected than just about anything else and that's why I think it is important that we have a national approach. The problem is that state and territory governments often go to Coag Energy Council meetings and say we are committed to a national approach and then do exactly the opposite. Um, and that's unfortunately the history of the way some of these things are unfolding even today. And some of the comments you will have heard already about yesterday's announcements from South Australia suggest that people are concerned that we've got another state going off doing its own thing and that will have dire consequences for everything else and even the current minister is suggesting that may even be partly unconstitutional. The Finkel review, I think, will play importantly into the climate review. Um, to some extent, Dr Finkel is a mad scientist and will come up with mad scientists thinking about this, but I think he's got enough people on his panel um, and 300 submissions to bring him back to uh, what will be, I think, important recommendations for how our energy system needs to deal with the transition to a very different um, environment. And inevitably, that's largely being driven by how we reduce emissions, and in particular, the expectation that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to do this without increasing substantially the proportion of intermittent supply, wind and solar, into our system. And I'm sure most people in this room would be aware that um, South Australia went from, from being the global exemplar of how to do this to the canary in the coal mine as how not to do it. 
um, very quickly. And unfortunately, that then became a magnet for political debate, which plays out um, until this very afternoon. The, um, I think there are interesting issues around the role of technologies in gas, and everyone gets really excited about technologies, but I don't think it's actually all that important in one sense, and that is that if we get the policies right, we might have some chance of delivering the technologies that we need. If we start with assuming the technology, we almost always get it wrong. Um, just as if we use forecasts for policy, we also get that wrong. I think the, um, uh, the discussion around what sort of policy will become important, Frank mentioned, made some comments about policy. Maybe eventually, after we've tried everything else, we'll come back to what's actually the first best policy. But we've got to try everything else first. Um, and we're certainly, um, so far, having a pretty good go at that. We've tried a couple. In fact, I think Australia may be the only country in the world to have tried a carbon price and then got rid of it. I think one of the important drivers yet to be tested is to the extent to which industry will become increasingly frustrated um, with the lack of credible climate policy. Not because industry wants to save the planet. I'm sure most people in industry are not uh, unworried, unworried about the future of their families and their children and grandchildren, but that's not their job as industry leaders. What they are worried about is how do you invest efficiently in anything to do with resources or energy or manufacturing in this country without some form of credible policy. And that brings me to the last comment, I think, is what would be the sort of minimum expectations we should have on the climate review this year. It seems to me there are at least two. One is that it should be credible. By that I mean in the context of achieving the targets to which Australia is committed. So I think it needs to be seen that what was put in place is credible. And it has a, therefore an element of longevity to provide this sort of um, confidence against which people can, can invest, knowing that it's not going to change every little while. And secondly, partly related to Helen's comment, it has to be scalable. Because, as we, I suspect everybody in this room knows, the view has been taken is that the commitments that were made in Paris, including Australia's, don't add up to achieving the climate objective to which the international community committed. And that means, by definition, if that's true, then those targets will have to be revised, and they're only going to be revised in one direction, and that is tighter. Now, as Helen said, we are already finding, broadly speaking, that our target for 2030 is turning out to be less than the target was only a few years ago for a whole, whole range of reasons. But I think the scalability of the policy, therefore we don't need a policy that assumes a particular view of the future because we know that that future is unknowable and therefore we have to have make sure that something is scalable. So it seems to me they would be two of the absolute key criteria which we should judge the, um, the outcome of the climate review. And I think finally, um, we need to think about the way this will interact with the rest, not just the energy sector. Um, because if we assume that the energy... I mean, many of the pieces of analysis you'll see talk about, well, if Australia has to reduce its emissions by 26%, therefore we'll assume energy has to... or electricity has to reduce its emissions by 26%. Well, anyone who's tried to stop cows burping and farting knows that's pretty tricky um, and it may turn out that the energy sector has to do a damn sight more than 26 to 28 percent and that creates an even bigger challenge 
And that will be something, again, which I think we need to be thinking about as the policy frameworks unfold. So they're my comments. I'm just going to take my seat again and maybe put a couple of questions to Helen and Frank. And please, if you could consider the sort of questions you'd like to ask in the next couple of minutes. Okay. I think I might... I'd like to start with, 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 with Frank. Um, you know, we've seen in the last couple of weeks almost policy by um, uh, billionaire Twitter feed. <laughs> and there are, at least we know now, two billionaires who to communicate via Twitter quite effectively. I don't think the Prime Minister's a billionaire, so just put it over. Um, and the other one, sorry, obviously Elon Musk, and we can talk about him if you're interested later, but in particular I was going to refer to um, the current President of the United States. And one of the questions we had submitted before this evening was what, uh, what, how does the world see the Trump presidency in terms of both impacting the global commitment to reduce emissions and what it might mean, and I guess more specifically how we might consider that in the, in the Australian context? Mm. Well, it's difficult to know just what the Trump presidency may, will mean for the global climate effort, but what we can quite confidently say is that uh, uh, the, the Paris Agreement and, you know, what came together there in terms of an expression of, of the will of, of individual nation-states to come together and work collaboratively on the climate change issue, and each nation going there with their own defined targets and their own bag of actions that they have pledged, right? That effort is not being fundamentally derailed by the United States, okay? So Trump has said that the United States will, uh, will whip up the Paris Agreement. Well, they can't do that. What they can do is... Uh, is, is withdraw from the from the Paris Agreement uh, within that, that would take four years, um, and you know in in a sense because this is this is this really doesn't have a great deal of hard legal ramifications. You know the nature of the Paris Agreement is one where nations come together and uh, and, and and mutually reassure each other about their their intent and actions. Okay, um, in that light, um, the greatest damage, if you will, to that agreement has already been done by the, by the announcement of a, of a sort of, you know, uh, in, intention to withdraw from it, right? And you haven't seen it fundamentally derailed. The last climate change conference, you know, so basically, you know, reaffirmed that things continue going their way. What it does, however, of course, is, you know, this is one of the major countries um, taking a decidedly different tack on climate and energy policy, uh, and I think we will see the echoes of that, uh, or we will hear the echoes of that in many countries. Um, and you could argue that, that we're already um, seeing them in Australia in terms of, you know, some positions that were... Uh, pre prior to the to the election of Trump, uh, where we're not really mainstream, we 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 can hear about them uh, on on the daily radio feeds. Any comments about President uh, Trump? Look, I again, what Trump says and what he does, I think you know, could turn out to be very different, and it is early days. And from what I see when I talk to companies and when I do talk to other countries, there are clear signs that international momentum from climate change action will continue. So I think that's a really hopeful and positive sign. So, you know, I, I think momentum is there, it's happening, and regardless of what Trump does, it'll continue to happen. I think the other 
the other thing that seems to have not just Australian momentum but globally is, um, broadly speaking, business community is pushing now for serious change. And, e and even um, you know, the, the, you'll see even the coal industry in the United States is now going down that track. Now, who would have thought, right? Um, now, you could argue whether uh, they have their own self-interest at heart, and if they don't, then I'd be very surprised. And, in fact, their shareholders should be seriously concerned if they don't have their self-interest at stake. But um, I think there's a realisation that one way or the other, this is now a risk that has to be managed, and you're better off managing it than uh, having some sort of uh, un un uh, completely unanticipated changes occurring. However, what the, in, in the um, document that the COAG Energy Council put out for the Finkel Review, they uh, put it on, Alan, to produce a blueprint for the, the security of the national electricity market. And I guess I'm interested in, and I'm not sort of asking you to give away any secrets tonight about um, what will be in the discussion paper, but, no, yes, I am. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what do you see as the deliverable? Is it, do you see a blueprint for climate policy? Do you see specifics? I mean, what sort of, what do you see as the output? Look, review. I am not going to preempt uh, the outcomes of the review and I'm not going to provide an opinion. But as to Dr Alan Finkel and the process uh, with the independent panel that he's leading, it is a very important input into the 2017 review. The government has been clear when it comes to the 2017 review, we're starting from where we are. We're starting from the current policies and that does provide certainty to business. We are going to look at every sector of the econ economy and look at the challenges and opportunities of reducing emissions in those sectors. And I think, you know, as the government said, we'll uh, consult widely and broadly with a range of people and then the advice that we provide to government will be based on those consultations and based on the terms of reference that the government released in December. So can I just maybe push you one little bit more on that? And that is that um, I understand fully that the review that the department's undertaking won't decide policy. But would you expect that the, the output would be a document of some sort which makes recommendations to the government and would that be public or have you not even got, you don't have a view yet as to what no, even the outcome, output would be? I don't have a view on whether you know, there will be a report that we make public. I mean, my job and the department's job is absolutely to provide recommendations and advice to government. How they choose to communicate the outcomes of the review is still a, a matter, I think, for discussion and decision, but ultimately how the government chooses to announce what it's uh, at the end of the review, that, that is a matter for government. But we are thinking through, again, how we provide advice. Government has said we'll conclude it sort of by 2017. But, yeah, those, those sort of questions on where, will there be another review report public or anything like that, they're matters for, for government. The discussion paper, as I said, though, will hopefully be released in coming weeks. And that really is the opportunity for everybody to have a look and have their say. The other, the other only slightly political question, which I won't push you too much on, um, is the interaction between the, uh, the Commonwealth and the states. Um, is, there, is there any sort of uh, dialogue connection going on between the review that you're undertaking and some of the activity that a number of states are doing in grappling with their own views about climate policy and how they can be better integrated? Because I think one of the problems we're seeing previously is a lack of integration. Is that something that you can, uh, you can see occurring? Yeah, look, at my level, so at officials' level, I am constantly talking to sort of my counterparts in all the states and territories. 
to understand what they're doing, to understand some of the challenges that they're grappling when it comes to reducing emissions and, in fact, when it comes to adapting to some of the impacts of climate change. So, yes, we will be talking to states and territories about what they're doing and they're certainly very interested in the 2017 review of climate change. Frank, do you have a, a view about this question about the interaction between state and federal policies on climate change more generally and even energy specifically? Because... It seems that, you know, even in the last little while, we've seen um, you know, the, the South Australian government, although to be fair, the South Australian government did make it very clear that the sort of policies that they're talking about would be folded into a national policy on climate change as one emerges. Now, I'm sure they've got their own view of what that should look like, but um, what's your view about that question as to the extent which we end up with an integrated approach versus a disparate approach? Yeah, so we're, we're seeing increasing action or at least announcement of impending action on climate change, low carbon things at the state level. ACT government out ahead there, you know, Victorian state government, Queensland, you know, South Australia, New South Wales even. Um, and, and so in a sense we've come full circle because, you know, towards the end of the Howard government there was a, a movement by the states to investigate the opportunities for state-based emissions trading scheme where the state says, well, if the feds don't do it, we'll do it together in some way, right? That was quickly shelved, of course, as it became apparently that the, that the federal government would in fact go ahead. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that, 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 you know, good federal solution is, is, is much preferable to, to state-based action. It is simply, you know, it'll be more, it'll more, it'll be more cost-effective, it'll be less messy, it'll be less subject uh, to the political swings that you get in individual states that'll, that'll give, tend to give you a bit of back and forth. On the other hand, of course, you know, you, if you consider that, that uh, the, the, the federal situation in terms of this being a party political thing where one party takes one position and the other party almost invariably seems to take the opposing position, if this were to continue for quite some time to come, then, then really at the end of the day, there does seem to be a significant role uh, for climate change policy action at the, at the state level, uh, where in a sense, you know, the, the party, the, the changes in government, in a sense, collectively even each other out over time. Okay. So, so perhaps that's what we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting way of thinking. Okay, so um, now let's hand over to the audience. We have two microphones, um, and we'll try and move things around. If you could please... Ideally, identify yourself, and if you do have an affiliation, I should point out that every CD has a small explosive device underneath it, and I've got this button, so if I need to, I can easily destroy you, okay? So please don't go on for too long in giving a speech. I do, I do realise people have very strong opinions about some of this stuff, but the idea is to get some questions and have some good discussion, so please, sir. Uh, Jeff Lazarus, I used to head up a, an organisation called Climate Active Australia a few years ago, so I had a bit of interest in um, in this issue. And look, I really am a bit concerned. You know, the, the theme or the, the title is restarting the debate, and uh, my view uh, is that um, you know we're a long way uh, behind what the science is really saying needs to be done. A very strong view from the Potsdam Institute, headed up by Professor Jochen Schulenhuber, uh, who advises the German government and and the Pope, um, saying and essentially saying the Paris Agreements well sort of looked and sounded good and. It was better than what was expected, but when you match it up with the science, it's a fail. Um, and same view of uh, James Hansen, the former head research officer 
from, from NASA and the Dinner Climate Research Centre, headed up by Professor Kevin Anderson, all saying that you know, we really are on the verge of a global catastrophe unless the top 22 nations start to dramatically, dramatically reduce their, their, their carbon emissions. And none of you actually referred to what are the scientific um, premises to um, you know, what your, your views are. And can I just um, express my absolute disgust at the comments made by um, um, Josh Frydenberg and, uh, and others making absurd claims that somehow there is clean coal and maybe we should be opting for a, you know, a new coal-based um, you know, power station and then blaming okay. renewable, sorry, uh, renewables on the South Australian... So have you got a uh, question? Sorry, excuse me, sir, have you got a That's question? That's my comment, um, comment and people can respond to it any way okay. they like. Do you have any reactions to the comment? Or I'd be happy to, to react. I mean, I, you know, it's really clear that, that, you know, if the world is, is, is to be in line with a two-degree or less outcome, then there is no role for the combustion of coal for energy or heat uh, without carbon capture and storage, right? That's really clear. And any kind of proposal uh, to, to build a coal-fired power station without CCS in the Western world needs to be seen in that light, right? And so... Uh, and to be clear, you know, I mean, coal-fired power stations without CCS are being built and have been built quite recently in other places in the, in, in the developed world. And, you know, there's every chance that they will hang around the, the necks of these countries in decades to come like millstones, right? They, they may well end up being stranded assets. And so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be quite outspoken about this. And, you know, I've talked a lot to different players in, in the energy industry, in the finance industry. And, you know, I mean, uh, there's no one who sees this as investable uh, without, without a really significant government subsidy uh, or, or, or perhaps even further than that, a government guarantee or government ownership. And so that really comes to a crucial point where sort of a... You know, um, if you take seriously the proposition that there might be a government-sponsored coal-fired power station, um, that 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 is a really steep proposition to to do that uh, on 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 the behalf of the Australian people. Thank you very much. My name is Dirk von Behrens. My father was heavily involved in South Australian Electricity Trust in the so-called national electricity market. Uh, creation. It's actually only the eastern states and also in the wind power there. But uh, on a much more narrow basis, I'd like to follow up two points that were made. One is the 49 kilometres per person per day that we tra travel. What are we doing with a substandard national web system? We, our system of... It's just appalling the way that uh, we, we've gone in the... And that would substitute for a lot of travel if you could have effective action and interaction at home. The second question was, um, you mentioned that we're going down in HCFCs, uh, the, the hydrofluorocarbons. You said 285%, so it's a reduction of only 15%. Is that... Am I understanding that correctly? Is it Dirk? Sorry, did yes. I catch your name? Yes. Thanks, yes. Dirk. Look, 
I won't pretend to be the expert on the NBN. I can only make one personal comment that I don't have it in the suburb that I live in and that drives my 15-year-old son absolutely insane. So I do take your point uh, about that, you know, with, with technology and things like the NBN, we may not have to travel that uh, 49 kilometres per day. On the issue of hydrofluorocarbon, so the stat that I gave about the phase down which is um, agreement we'll see Australia and other developed countries phase down HFCs to 85% of current consumption levels by 2036. You're right. But do think about that in terms of the amount of emissions that it's going to result in reducing. You know, the global phase down will reduce emissions by 70 billion tonnes in the period to 2050, and that, that is quite significant. I'm not the expert on HFC, so I don't know what the plan is to sort of post uh, that period, but why don't I take that on notice for you and get back to you? Right at the back there, I think, gentlemen's the... Yes. Uh, yes, my name's Andrew Bray. I'm with the Australian Wind Alliance. Um, I'd like to ask a question about gas. Um, not the sort of chest dumping that there was today. I suspect that'll be, you know, easily sort of overlooked in the scheme of things. But um, the the idea, and, and it was mentioned a couple of times tonight, that, that gas will be an important part of the grid going forward. Because last week there was... Um, there was a report released by Reputex which, uh, which found that the cost of wind and solar together with the storage needed to firm up that capacity was actually now, with the rising prices of gas and the falling prices of storage and renewables, uh, was now actually below the, uh, the price of uh, producing electricity with gas. So um, with a view to not... Um, locking in, you know, making bad decisions in this decade that we'll regret in later things. Firstly, what would be the sort of policy drivers that you would need to incentivise that storage to come online? We have a RET that goes to 2020, which is, will keep renewables development going for the next couple of years, um, but not necessarily incentivise the storage. So what's the policy driver? Uh, and secondly, you know, everything that we talk about in this space is uh, p potentially hamstrung by the politics. I mean, if uh, you guys will come up with awesome advice for the politicians, uh, but, but then what are the chances we'll actually see something valuable once the political process has made mince meat of it? The, um, I think the... Uh, for me, I just put the second one first, because I think part of the answer here is that people in industry, and generally particularly energy, I suppose, need to be better at helping the government find answers rather than criticising the government um, to fix things because I don't think that's particularly helpful. And one of the interesting things about, about industry and government in this country is that there's something in the, that, that people have given in the water when they leave university such that when they're in the private sector they believe that government's got no idea and when they're in government they believe that industry is just, you know, mad capitalist um, hungry bastards, right? And... Other countries don't seem to have quite that same degree of angst between the two. And until we find better ways of the two actually working together... I don't know what happened this afternoon. I heard the result, but I haven't heard the detail of the discussion that went on between the Prime Minister and the gas industry. But if that's the beginnings of a bit better dialogue, that would be a bloody good thing, because it seems to me the answer is, to, is for each party to help the other out of its problem rather than to criticise the other for what they're doing. And that may be part of the solution. In terms of the policy drivers of things like uh, batteries and so forth, Frank, do you want to comment on that? Have you got a view about that issue? 
Well, it's a really good question, right? Because, and that, that relates then to the role of the national electricity market in, in a future system that is heavier on renewables, right? Um, and, and obviously storage, right? If, you, if you've got a storage facility, say you own a battery park or, or a pumped hydro storage facility, then you will be looking to make your money when electricity prices on the grid are really, really high, right? And then uh, you fill your storage back up when the electricity price is low, and so you live off variability, day-to-day, week-to-week variability of, of wholesale power prices. Um, and I don't think we have a really clear understanding what will be the variability of wholesale power prices in the future. And part of the reason we have such a, such a limited understanding of that is that we don't know how the power mix will evolve over time. And part of the reason why we have such confusion <coughs> over what the power mix will look like is that, 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 that policy settings are so confused and, and keep chopping and changing, right? So it comes back to, to policy uncertainty on that. Um, and, you know, I mean, if, if you do see a case for, for example, state governments directly investing in energy supply infrastructure, then to my mind, uh, storage facilities are a reasonably good case for that kind of direct uh, intervention because it's pretty clear that they will be needed in future. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of unclear to what extent the private sector will really uh, invest in them at this point. The only caveat I'd put on some of this is that um, until someone's done it, nobody knows. And I respect the analysis that Reputex and others do about this, but you know, so, as many people have said famously or infamously, e all economic models are wrong and some of them are useful. And um, I don't know which ones are going to be useful yet, but I do know that if you seriously want to have value put on fast start gas, remember, and fast start gas is very different from gas that runs all the time. You may not use very much, but it's there when you need it in short bursts, whether it's pumped hydro, whether it's batteries, who knows? But what we need is a market that values that reliability, and that's something that Dr Finkel is certainly looking at. There's one question over here. Yes, here, sir. Yes. Yep. Hi, my name is Joe Thwaites. Um, you've talked quite a lot about the uh, politicisation of the issue, which has been a huge frustration, I think, for everyone here. Um, we had a prime ministerial thought bubble a month or so ago about pumped hydro, um, and there's just been a study produced by the ANU, uh, Andrew Blakers, the Research School of Engineering, which startled me by arguing that, uh, at least in the eastern half of the country, the, the resources are there, the sites are available to have renewable energy and pumped hydro at, you know, at a very reasonable cost. So I'd be particularly interested in the comments of, of Frank and, uh, and Tony in particular, uh, if they've seen the study and if they... I mean, it looks like a silver bullet, so it's probably too good to be true, but what do you think? Um, Frank, you try. Well, look, I mean, we, 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 we'll certainly know, know the study, right, and it's a, it's a technical feasibility study, and uh, lo and behold, finding that the country is, in fact, not pancake flat, but there's lots of, uh, you know cliffs and hills and so on and so forth, and all you need is a 100, 200 <coughs> metre drop uh, with a bit of water available because the water gets recycled up and down and, and, and so that can be done. Um, of course, you know, does that directly equate every one of these sites that you can geographically identify, does that directly equate into a site that you can actually use for such a facility? 
well, probably not, but you know, if you can use one in 50, you're probably enough. Um, the bigger uncertainty, and I think that comes back exactly to what you said, Tony, the proof is in, put in the pudding and to in, in terms of what it actually costs to build and operate, and there is one such facility in Australia. It's part of the Snowy Mountain Hydro, right? And so, uh, you know, the yeah, the, the cost data that we have from the construction of that back in probably the 60s is, is really not much used today. Yeah. Right at the back. Yeah. Hello. Um, just a lay person really looking to understand some of the barriers for investment and entry into renewable energy into the future and just sort of reflecting and wondering uh, who are we looking to internationally? Are there particular um, schemes operating at the moment that we are taking learning from or are we now in the position of taking leadership internationally in that space? Well, I think in terms of um, policies, everyone's trying everything, right? We've, we've tried um, basically everybody else's infectious diseases a few times and some of them didn't work and some of them have worked. Um, we, uh, we've used renewable energy target, we've used feed-in tariffs, we're using reverse auctions. Um, they all have perverse outcomes, in a sense, that don't, you know, that, that none of them are actually climate policies. They're all industry policies to support specific groups of technologies, and they don't do what Frank was throwing out as a challenge before, which is basically to say, we don't, we don't you know, in, in terms of the, the Prime Minister's words, we're not, we don't, we're not, we, we want to be somewhat indifferent to the technologies. Let's make sure the policies drive it. So, you know, if that turns out to be wind or solar or solar thermal or even combinations of gas with solar thermal, those sort of things, which could get very low emissions, if not zero, um, then we should have policies to support that. And I think we're, unfortunately, not quite there yet, and that's where I think we should focus our attention. And I, to be honest with you, I don't think... You go around the world, and, and Finkel just came back from a, you know, a two-week trip around the world, I think one of the things he's discovered is that no-one else knows how to do this any better than no, You can't go out there and find someone else's answer and bring it back to Australia. We've tried that a couple of times, and we came unstuck on that. We are, in some ways out there with everybody else and therefore and there are particular circumstances in this country that are different we've got a small number of middle middle-sized cities a long way apart we can't interconnect them in the same way the european countries are interconnecting their system so you can't take wind-rich germany and connect it with hydro-rich norway we don't unless we you know connect to new zealand and bring it a bit closer um, so there's some we have some we have very specific challenges we can learn from the others but hopefully we can learn positively and rather than negatively, which we seem to have done so far, I think. Right in the front here. Oh, sorry, is the one there? Sorry. This one first, yes. So. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Um, I had a look at some reports that from a whistleblower in the gas industry, and particularly she was in Origin Energy, and basically she was discussing a whole lot of things where Origin Energy hadn't reported various breaches and stuff like that. My understanding is that this hasn't been to court and it may not get to court. It may, um, but I suppose it raises the wider question of is there some way of making sure of the actual emissions that come from gas for each stage of the production cycle? So the mining of it, the exploration of it, the transport of it, conversion at the power station, etc., etc. Um, if the emissions reported from gas are wrong, it's vastly worse than CO2 because it's, what, a 70, 80, some number like that. 
um, higher in emissions intensity than CO2. And so in fact, we might be at the stage where the gas industry has higher emissions than coal rather than lower emissions than coal. So my question to all three of the panel is how do we get um, an emissions rating for gas in the national emissions inventory that actually reveals the real emissions from gas rather than what the gas industry would like us to believe. Look, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of the report that you're referring to, but what I will say is that Australia's national inventory is highly regarded internationally. We have the UNFCCC coming and reviewing us regularly. The way that we measure and verify and report emissions is in line with international standards. So again, I'm, I'm sorry, and I didn't catch your name. Hi, I'm, I'm not aware of, of the report that you refer to. So apart from, again, just assuring you that our, the, the way that the department uh, measures, verifies and reports emissions in all sectors of the economy is best practice. It's world-renowned. We do get reviewed regularly. And again, why don't I just take that on notice? I think the... Um, I think uh, it's on my CV that I work for Origin Energy, uh, but not since 2008, I should point out. Um, and I'm aware of the report. Um, the issue of full life cycle emissions is, is important, and there needs to be integrity around that. The answer is yes, you can. Um, as with most other emissions, there's a combinations of actual measurement, calculations, and so forth. And you know, CSIRO have done a lot of work on that. Um, there are people who feel very strongly that, that those, are, those numbers are either are or not accurate. Um, but I think it's important that the that, that be, be transparent because it does raise concerns that people genuinely have about whether the gas emissions from this full life cycle of extracting gas and then burning it are as low as people would sometimes claim. I think the answer is yes, you can, and we need to make sure that we do, but there are regulations in place to do that. Uh, thanks. Um, I'm Will Howard. I'm from the Office of the Chief Scientist, so that's my disclosure. Um, I wanted to ask, just go back to some of the trends in energy use and emissions. So uh, in the US, for example, you know, uh, gas has come in and begun to displace coal faster than any anything else uh, at the moment and also drive a US trend of lowering emissions, uh, independent of government climate policy at the moment. So I guess a question mostly for Tony and Frank, do you see other trends like that uh, that uh, we, we talked about energy storage. Do you see other trends like that um, that governments can work with, incentivize, amplify um, that are currently happening uh, without any particular policy drivers um, that that would that would drive some of the some of what we want to see and some of that transformation? I know it's difficult to look into the crystal ball, but um, you know, what's just happening that politicians don't have any control over? Well, yeah, exactly. There's one overwhelming trend that we see and that's continuing and that's the drastic reduction in costs for renewable energy, in particular solar panels, but also many of the other renewable energy technologies, including wind, right? And I mean, this, this has very quickly come to a point where these renewable energies provide electricity, just, you know, kilowatt hours, um, 
more cheaply than than the conventional fossil fuels for new build. Okay, so this this is this is what we're grappling with in Australia is that transition from the existing build, which you can operate for the most part really cheaply, to the new build, which is of course you know expensive because you need to you need to invest in it. But for new investments, you know, will very soon be there where you know. In, in sunny places and windy places, it's really a no-brainer what you invest in, and then you need to couple of storage. Um, and often overlooked, so big technology trend is energy efficiency, right? I mean, we, and again, you know, we, we talked about projections and how difficult it is to get projections right. And one of the factors there is that, you know, it was always predicted that Australian residential and business electricity demand would keep growing because, you know, we have an economy that keeps growing, population that keeps growing, so our electricity demand will keep growing. Well, not so, essentially, because of ele energy efficiency, which, which has been improving tremendously and which still has a very, very long way to go. So that's a really positive trend, I think, both of those. Okay, there's one at the very back, and we might have that might. Okay, that'll be it. Hi, uh, I'm Damber Bulescu from EnergyStorageRights.com. Uh, when policies are volatile, uh, businesses should uh, hedge themselves. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, available technology to convert fossil fuel assets, like an open pit uh, mines or uh, uh, depleted. Uh, uh, oil uh, reservoir into uh, energy storage assets, like compressing uh, water or air into a uh, closed mine or uh, converting uh, like uh, GenX power, converting two lakes uh, into uh, off-river pump hydro. They have money put aside in their balance sheet for uh, um, uh, environmental uh, costs after the reservoir is depleted, why they are not using this money to convert the assets into green renewable assets? So the question is about why we're not using these abandoned mines for pumped hydro effectively. Is that what you're okay. Thank you. Yes. My understanding uh, is there is one could, yeah. being tested almost yeah. as we speak. Yeah, um, in, in North Queensland, um, there are, and, and the broad comment that Frank made about, in response to this point about ANU study, is that there are, there is a very active piece, of, a lot of work being done to look at the potential for those sort of sites. Um, there are, the pumped hydro issue is not a technology question. It's all about can you find the combination of the right geography somewhere near where you can have solar or wind, somewhere near a transmission line, and can you make the economics work? And that's what some of the feasibility studies that the government's currently funding are intended to address. Um, I think there are interesting potential possibilities here. I'm not sh sure they're going to save us any more than I think Elon Musk is, but we'll see. Okay, look, on that note, um, we should bring this to a close. Can I firstly thank uh, Helen and Frank for being with us and sharing their views, and particularly for Helen, um, as anybody knows, um, the role of a uh, bureaucrat in an area that's as tricky as this is a challenging one, and Helen has certainly managed to weave her way through that with some degree of aplomb. Um, secondly, can I thank the library, um, this is a, uh, the first of our events. There will be more, um, and I would ask you to either check out the Grattan website or uh, register with us as a member or with the library. Uh, also, um, I'd also recommend that the ANU, under Frank's leadership, the Crawford School, also runs public forums, sometimes in conjunction with us as well. 
Um, and finally, can I thank the, uh, the staff who helped us, both the library staff and the Grattan staff for putting this together. And finally, thank you for very much for turning out in such a great number and with your questions and thoughts for this evening. I think it's been a success from our perspective and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much.